Is there sheets or Wawa in Breezewood? That's got to be Sheets oh, Country, right? Wow. I know it's Sheets Country because I've had, uh, like on trips to Kings and Wilkes, there is uh, a Sheets within the, uh, on, that, uh, on that route. Man, I cannot remember of all the cacophony that is Breezewood, Pennsylvania, if there is a, a Sheets or a Wawa in, uh, in there as well. I feel like Google could answer this for us, but it's much more fun to randomly speculate. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division Three football. We're the largest division with some of the smallest schools, and I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. My co-host, Keith McMillan, has been talking about Wawa since before 1999, but that is when I met him, Keith, the... Please do the introductory thing. Yeah, you're right. I'm the, the South Jersey native, the former player, the 425 defense to Pat spread offense. Or, or Pat, are you more like single wing? Spread probably makes sense. I think it's uh, perfectly modern. Yeah, I think that's why I didn't go single wing there. I guess I'm the yin to your yang, the dozen year co-host. You get the picture. Pat, I, I think we're sitting on the best offseason podcast in around the nation history. We've got a D3 NFL veteran, a D3 NFL hopeful, and the coach of a D3 finalist, who happens to have a likely D3 NFL draft pick on his roster. So, Oh, and by the way, there's some news to sprinkle in, so I should just let you take it from here. That sounds like a good idea. Shall we sprinkle? Sprinkle me, sprinkle me, sprinkle me, sprinkle me, sprinkle me, sprinkle me, sprinkle me. Yeah, so this podcast is dropping on the week of the 2020 NFL Scouting Combine. Typically, that's not particularly noteworthy from a Division Three football perspective, but we have a rooting interest this year in that St. John's tackle Ben Barch is there, having uh, really wowed scouts at the Senior Bowl, having worked his way up the, the potential draft charts, or at least the way that people are talking about it. Keith, we have not had a draft pick in Division Three or out of Division Three since that guy you were referencing earlier, Ali Marpet, the guy from Hobart who's now playing for the Tampa Bay Bucks, who we will be talking with coming up in just a few moments. It's a pretty exciting offseason because it's been it's been a while. Yeah, and, and I think there's a pretty good chance that uh that Ben Barch will get drafted. And uh, you know, you'll hear Gary Foshing talk about uh the experience of trying to catch up with him during uh during the senior bowl and it's sort of uh, you know, it's just a, it's a real packed time for them. But I mean, I, I think the thing that's that's special about uh, Ben, besides you know his his playing ability and his attitude, and, and you'll hear Coach Foshing talk about all that. But I mean, he's six six three oh nine currently, or that's what he's listed at. Uh, you know, with thirty two and uh, seven eight inch arms, so that's almost thirty three inch arms. Which those are the kind of traits that you're looking for when you're trying to draft an NFL tackle, and maybe someone who could bump down to to guard or um, or center later. But at, at six six, I think they probably think they're going to fill him out a little bit more, even even you know heavier than three oh nine. And you know, I'm I'm not one of those people who like watches the combine and looks at the body. You know, the guy says, oh, he's got he could put on 15 more pounds. But I think <laughs> when you hear later in this podcast where he came from uh, position wise and, and, and you know, how he's changed his body to, to get himself um, NFL ready, I, I, th- I think it will help it make a little bit more sense why he's projected as a tackle uh, in the NFL as well as, uh, you know, where he came from at St. John's. One person who you will not hear from on this podcast is actual Ben Barch himself. Uh, ben Barch's uh, 
agent, his representative is uh, not letting him talk to anybody, including podcasts that they've never heard of. I tried dropping, you know, my Jake Wade Award uh, credentials on them and got uh, no response. So uh, there you go. Also, people listening to this podcast are going to have a fun time kind of tracking the development or the lack of development of my voice as I'm coming back from a cold, which is now like literally three weeks ago, uh, but is still making this noise. So uh, have fun with uh, listening to how it sounds in each of the various interviews. Uh, February is also a big time for coaching carousel, a couple of hires who I thought were worth mentioning. Josh Carter, a guy who was an All-America selection by us at Muhlenberg, was the special teams coach for the Mules last year. He's been hired as the head coach at Juniata. They're looking to maybe capture some of that Mules magic. I liked uh, Kurt Fitzpatrick moving from Mooresville State to Cortland. I think that's a, a pretty good hire for Cortland. And I thought uh, Jimmy Robertson, uh, you know, a former RPI quarterback and uh, a guy who's been an assistant at FDU for a while, getting uh you know getting promoted to head coach there i think these are all guys who um you know work themselves into situations where they can be successful well i might be overstating that in some case but they're all you know all of those schools made good hires let's put it that way well pat the last time we recorded a podcast we talked about one of the the biggest coaching changes of this offseason and and certainly there are a few um you mentioned the the longtime courtland state Mike Swider retired at Wheaton, but Vince Karras moving on. I think last time we 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 did a pod, Pat, the uh, Mountain Union had not finalized the hire, so yeah. we should uh, we should probably mention that one as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, offensive coordinator Jeff Dart is uh, taking over the head coaching job there, and if uh, using that as the uh, you know the the bookmark for where we left off, uh, Jesse Scott gets promoted from uh, uh, you know from offensive coordinator and a former offensive lineman for the Wheaton Thunder. He's now going to be the next Wheaton Thunder head coach following Mike Swider. And I think both of those programs, because they've been so highly successful for so long, you want to keep it in the family uh, best you can. You know, you know, you have a structure that works. You you know, you have a coach that's well liked, and I I think it's true that the players always want a familiar face, and sometimes that's not the best thing for the program. And, and the most famous example of that, of course, is, is UW Whitewater uh, reaching into its past and, and hiring Lance Leipold, which turned out to be clearly the best thing, uh, not just for their program, but for any program maybe uh, ever in, in D three. Um, <laughs> But I think in these cases, probably it was worth a shot, you know, worth keeping it in the family. First of all, you know, Mountain Union got got it done in like, you know, matter of one to two weeks. Same thing with Wheaton. It was a very quick process from the end of the season to to hiring Jesse Scott. And I think, um, you know, even if you want your program to do its due diligence and, and search because you only get these opportunities to hire you know, once every several years, Um when you know you got something that's working and you have somebody in the building that's a known quantity as opposed to, um, you know, to, to bringing in someone who you just don't know how they're going to work with. You know, you may have a good feel for how they work with players, but not with administration or, or recruits or whatever. You know, just having that known quantity and being able to keep a rolling program rolling, you know, both Mount Union and, uh, and Wheaton advanced in the, in the postseason last year. So, I mean, I, I see those hires as pretty wise. Uh, February, we made this month a focus in terms of collecting the 2020 football schedules normally that is not something that uh, 
we have time to do during the run-up to the basketball NCAA tournament because I'm also doing D3Hoops.com, but made this a, 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 you know, a focal point of the past month, and I say we got about 75% of the games in. Some of the ones that uh, are interesting to me, Keith, uh, that are in all of these are matchups which are new this year. There's some you know, great, interesting matchups that are, uh, you know, that are continue from previous years. But uh, Mary Harden Baylor has a new, uh, a new non-conference game. They are hosting Simpson, and will return that game in 2021. Hampton Sydney is playing Baldwin Wallace. They're also playing Widener this year. Both of those are new. I think we know we've talked about Westminster and Mount Union getting together. I would have to go really deep into the bag to get what podcast number that was when we talked with uh, Westminster's head coach, but uh, that's been something we've known about for quite some time. Like uh, Cortland going to WNL, John Carroll going to Ithaca, Stevenson hosting RPI, Dubuque going to Marietta. They're just like combinations of schools that we don't really talk about so much. Yeah, and I, I think the crossover is really helpful when you get further into the, the season. We get to weeks 9, 10, 11, and we're looking for games that that help us sort the playoff picture these games are really helpful i think when adam turr or whoever ends up writing the around the nation column oh. this year when you i know right don't break news on the uh on the pod i <laughs> i don't think there's i don't think there's any any decision been made there no there um, hasn't if you want to write around the nation on d3football.com send me a note with some clips we could talk uh, adam is a very busy man but um you know when that person gets to week five which is usually after the the September games uh, have taken place, and we re rank the conferences: Simpson at Mary Harden, Baylor, you know, RPI, Stevenson, Dubuque, Marietta. Those kind of games help you sort, especially the middle conferences, where I think after you get the, the, there's some change at the top. Every not at the very top, but like you know two two through six, I think it rotates a little bit, maybe seven, eight, nine, and then from like nine to sixteen is really just conferences that are basically playing the same level of football. You know, a little, a little change here and there. I think the Centennial's risen out of that group over the past few years. But, you, you know, you're talking about like the MAC, uh, the American Rivers Conference, formerly Iowa, um, ODAC, PAC, North Coast sometimes is at the bottom of that group and creeps up in there, Liberty League. A lot of these teams are, are playing really similar games, and I think these matchups help you sort those out. As far as which one – which ones are interesting? I, I think probably the best one in that group, uh, as far as a game, is uh, John Carroll at Ithaca. Be a, be a new quarterback or maybe a new old quarterback back at the helm uh, for Ithaca this year. And so when these non-conference games early in the season, you'll, you'll get to see debuts. Uh, the Mountain Union game will be the first under uh, Jeff Dart. Cortland will, will be the first game under its new coach. Uh, and RPI at Stevenson, Yeah, I think – We'll get to a point later in in the offseason, in the podcasting season, where we're starting to think about top 25 um, and the teams that were seven and three last year, six and four, eight and two, and we're just outside the top 25 that may break in and may surprise a little bit. And you're looking at schools like RPI and Stevenson to make that kind of breakthrough. So I think it's a real good list here. Um, you know, Hampton, Sydney, and Baldwin Wallace could put like the hyphen on the line. You know, whichever whichever team wins, the other the other uh, program has. Baldwin Wallace was formerly a hyphenated school, like your your yours truly, alma mater, uh, Randolph Macon, and our rival, Hampton, Sydney. Baldwin Wallace got rid of the hyphen, so maybe Hampton, Sydney, and Baldwin Wallace should play for the hyphen. And the you know, if uh, if Baldwin Wallace wins, Hampton, Sydney has to go without it for a year. I don't know. 
I'm liking the the idea of the hyphen bowl, even though we've talked about that in conjunction with uh, some other schools. I like that as a uh, I like that as a thought. Let's do that. One other question, and this is a schedule that is not fully out yet, and there's some questions about the viability of Wesley College overall. We haven't written this story, but the Delaware State News. Uh, you know, the and the Wilmington News Journal, they get that right. That's the paper that's in Wilmington, Delaware. These guys have been uh, following this story very closely where Wesley has been asking the, uh, the, the Delaware State Legislature for funding just to stay open, in some cases just to stay open for the rest of this academic year. And Keith, I hate to kind of talk about some of this stuff because in some ways it might become a self-fulfilling prophecy if we start talking about it too much because, you know, kids might lose confidence in it pull out, go somewhere else, and, you know, and uh, enrollment dips, and it's that's the end of the road. But I think it's something we have to be seriously concerned about. Well, yeah, I don't know if we're that powerful uh, in terms of our reach to... You and uh, I. You and I are that powerful, my man. Maybe we are. Um, but, yeah, you know, 10 recruits makes a, makes a big difference um, in, in terms of... Uh, you know, Wesley's program and, and the school's viability. I'll also say too, like if, if you're the type of person who, who uh, tunes out at the end of November, tunes out after the stag bowl in December, you check back in every once in a while. And then you, you catch, you catch up on the podcast. There's like major news within this podcast. Um, not just the coaching changes, which I thought was major enough, the schedule news, the, um, the the game at US Bank Stadium which we'll talk about later I didn't even I didn't even uh, really process that one until I started uh preparing for this pod and then yeah Wesley uh one of the really major most important programs you know maybe 10 most important programs um of the past 15 or 20 years to think that they would um not be around man it's it's been a real just been a, just a, a ton of unexpected turnover the past few years Back on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. And we are joined by Ali Marpet, who is now entering his sixth year in the NFL already, which is a, a little bit hard to believe. A uh, D3Football.com All-American out of Hobart, second round pick in the NFL draft. And uh, now, I guess officially, it's safe to say, a longtime member of the Tampa Bay Bucks. We really appreciate uh, you joining us on the podcast. I appreciate uh, you having me. I appreciate uh everything you do at t3football.com well thanks man i uh, am sorry that it has been until now that we have ever uh spoken to you it's sometimes hard to get pro players uh or through the prospective pro players agents to get uh to get access so i should before we go any further thank uh, james baker and frank rossi at uh in the huddle for helping us uh get in touch with you that's greatly appreciated and uh ali just kind of tell us a little bit about and this seems like the super stupid basic question, but what's it like being an NFL player? Yeah, uh, no, that's not a, a basic question. I mean, it's a common question. And I think that for me, um, it's been very exciting, really, is the only way to, to put it, the, that I've been able to continue uh, to play this game for as long as I have. Because I think... Uh, Every step of the way has kind of been a surprise uh, for myself. Even, uh, I mean, if you had told me a 
back in college that I'd even you know have an opportunity to start in the NFL or make it to three man roster. I think uh, I've, I've just it's really been a, a surprising process and an exciting process, and again, just something I've been incredibly grateful uh, about, and the fact that I've had a lot of people that have you know helped and poured into me this time. There's kind of a lot of things that had to happen in order for me to uh, you know play for five years going on six now. I know, obviously, the run-up to the draft in 2015 is is a while back now. Uh, but you, you know, you were a all-star at the Senior Bowl, uh, you know, and then you turned a lot of heads. Obviously, the Senior Bowl is a great uh, showcase opportunity for guys. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what you remember, what the process of kind of coming up to the draft was like. Yeah, the Senior Bowl was definitely a whirlwind. Uh, when you're there. It's you mean it's it's an evaluation process every step of the way. The, there's two NFL teams that coach the game, so hopefully you put a, a you know a good uh, show on for them and show them that football is is you know uh, important to you because they can sniff that kind of stuff out right away if they're in a room for you, with you for 30 minutes. Um, so again, it's an evaluation process all the time, all day long, and uh, it's a definitely a stressful stressful time because even if you're not playing football, it's a really competitive. Uh, job interview uh and it's again for me the football was kind of the e- easier part it was, it was really about you know learning how to interview with teams and and uh, uh figuring all that other stuff out that i was able to get some pretty good counsel about my age uh coaches about how to how to handle that um, but again it, it was a tremendous tremendous opportunity for me because i was able to get evaluated by nfl teams against top talent uh, at the Division One level, so I think some of the, the challenges with evaluating Division Three prospects is you don't necessarily know how they're going to translate. And for me, having that tape against Division One talent was uh, a really helpful step in the evaluation process, um, uh, which again ended up helping me quite a bit. Well, yeah, and you know we know that. There are, you know, and people say it, right, if, if you're good enough, the NFL will find you, right? And that certainly seems to be the case. But, you know, I think we have seen, you know, by the fact that nobody has been drafted since you were out of Division Three, And, you know, there was a bit of a drought before that, that, uh, you know, that lack of uh, ability to evaluate a, a player against Division Three talent uh, and translate that to the NFL seems to be uh, a big issue. Yeah, well, I'd also say that within the NFL evaluation process, which I say I'm, I'm getting more familiar with, um, there are certain uh, boxes that you really do need to check, right? So if you're looking at an offensive lineman, what uh, you know, if they're not, if they're under, you know, six foot one, then you you just you're just not in that category. So it becomes much more challenging, especially at the Division three level, if you don't fit inside these parameters. And I think a lot of Division three guys, even though they may have the talent to play at the next level, kind of slip through the cracks if they don't uh, really have these parameters. Yeah, I could totally understand that. In the league or in the locker room or in your first training camp, like when does it? When do people stop thinking of you as a D three guy? What? What? Uh, you know? When do you live down that that stigma or whatever? And is it? I assume it's a stigma because that's what I've heard. Yeah, so um, it's you know, if it's a, it's a stigma, I'm I'm, I'm happy to uh, to represent, I guess. Um, but yes, I think that uh, there's always that tag to you. Like, I mean, even you know Pierre Garcon, who's had tremendous success in the league, uh, has that attached to him, which I think 
uh, is not necessarily negative or, or positive. It's just uh, definitely some uh, a different way that people view you and your your path to the NFL. Yeah, and and then like who else have you seen? You know, obviously Garcon, and if I remember correctly. Were you and Dante Dye, the Heidelberg wide receiver, both on the Bucks at the same time for a short time? Remember that correctly? Yeah, exactly. So uh, Dante Didi and I played uh, for a couple of years, actually. And now he's, uh, I think, with the Vipers. And I, just, I saw him play uh, this this weekend, which was awesome. Um, but yeah, we were on the team for a while. And I think at one point it was actually me, uh, Didi, and Cecil Shorts, I think, were all on the team at the same oh, time. Yeah. So that was three D3 guys. And even this past year, we had... Um, on our practice squad, Nate Truen, uh, who is, right. uh, from Whitewater. So, yeah. From Whitewater. Exactly. So we've had, I mean, I've played with and played against a lot of division three guys. Um, I don't think that, uh, there's been a lot of guys that have, uh, there's only a handful of guys really that I think have played, you know, t- 10 years plus something like that. But really there are definitely guys that get their opportunities in the NFL. And you are halfway there. Does that, uh, how does that hit you? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, again, I feel like I've played a lot of football, but at the same time, it's really flown by. And uh, it's weird thinking that I'm going on to year six, and I, at this point, with this perspective, I really do have the utmost respect for the guys that can play, uh, you know, 10-plus years. Still a young guy. You won't turn 27 here for, a, you know, a, a, a few more weeks. Um, how, you know, is obviously you, uh, it, it's wear and tear, right? You're playing 16 games. You're working out in the offseason. You got preseason. How long does your body, how long do you think your body holds up in the NFL? Yeah, so I think for a lot of guys, unfortunately, uh, you kind of go as far as your body can take you. And sometimes the guys, if you don't, I mean, just by luck or whatever it ends up being, uh, just their body shuts down on them, and that's sort of unfortunate. Right now, I feel really good where I'm at, and uh, the steps that I've taken to you know take care of my body. Uh, but again, it's it's there's definitely a certain amount of luck that plays into this uh, into your health. So as of right now, I feel good and keep going as far as my body's body will take me. How are things looking for the Bucks coming up this year? I think it's really exciting for us. I mean, uh, I think uh, you know, our first year with new coaches, new coaching staff presents its own challenges, and uh, I think that you know we're—I I don't know if you followed us, but there were a couple of games that were really close, and that's how it is in the NFL, obviously. But I feel as if those these those kinds of games were very winnable and very in our own uh, hands that we kind of just let slip away. So I think if we were able to just clean up a couple things, I think that we end up in the playoffs without a doubt. Can I ask you to compare uh, Jameis Winston and like Shane Sweeney for a second, just for kicks? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's a couple guilt uh, um, positions that I'd say you can you can like Jameis. You can see. I mean, some guys make it look so easy. And, and Jameis really uh, has a real uh, amazing ability to, you know, throw the ball. Great understanding of football. Sweeney, <laughs> similar as well, but I think probably not, <laughs> again, at the same level. All right, fair enough. I figured I would ask. But, like, of the other guys who, like, you played with or played against, you know, were there other guys who, if they had – gotten the opportunity or maybe had had, you know, another couple inches on them or something like that would have been in a, in a position to succeed or at least have a, a shot to succeed in the league? 
without a doubt, um, without a doubt, I played a couple guys in college that, again, I, I can speak to my uh, teammate, uh, Tyree Coleman, who at the time was, you know, one of the nation, I don't know, leading the nation. I don't know where he was at on the list, but really an incredible player, an incredible athlete. But he was a defensive end, and I think he might have measured up at like six foot or something like that. And just because he doesn't fit fit inside parameters, he wasn't really given the opportunity. But again, ability wise, I really think that had he was had he been given that opportunity, he definitely could have you know been on a, a practice squad, maybe even a roster. So I think there's a lot of those kind of guys at the Division three level, um, and. Uh, it's unfortunate that some guys miss those shots just because of those, those parameters that are put on. T3's got a guy right now who's kind of treading, you know, along the same sort of path you did, outstanding uh, offensive lineman for St. John's University. Ben Barch also turned some heads at the Senior Bowl, is, is headed to the Combine. If you were to talk to somebody like him or, you know, anybody making the transition from D, try to make the transition from D3 to the NFL, what kind of advice would you have? Yeah, I mean, I've actually talked to Ben quite a bit. Um, I, yeah, so I think that, uh, I've, yeah, so I've followed his story and I've heard that he's got, you know, he's going to get a legitimate chance, phenomenal, um, uh, well-earned and well-deserved well, well on his end. But I think that what I'd say, similar to him or any other Division three guy, is uh, I think it's important to understand, you know, what got you to that place to get evaluated by NFL talent and kind of not get... Uh, lost in uh, the process, which can be sometimes overwhelming or stressful. Instead, it's trying to stay true to what you got you there and the kind of that mentality and attitude you have to uh, uh, get you uh, play uh, at, a, at a high level, the Division three level, and hopefully that's good enough to carry you on to the, next, uh, the NFL level. And let me ask you what, uh, you know, what is February, what's March like for an NFL player? What are you guys doing right now? Yeah, so uh, as far as obligations to the team, we're off. Uh, most guys, I'd say, depending on where you're finishing the playoffs, if you're finished uh, without a playoff uh, push like we did, uh, most of the time early January you take off, and then you eat in, and then by February you start training again full-time, like spending you know, four or five hours out of the day working out, um, and then the rest of the time is you're usually so beat by these workouts <laughs> that yeah. you just do nothing the rest of the day. I mean, you kind of, you know, piddle around the house, but at the end of the day, uh, these workouts are the majority of your time and energy. How much in touch are you with coach DeWall and the guys at Hobart about the, where the program is right now? I saw coach DeWall last week, actually. Um, he was down here, uh, recruiting, which I think is phenomenal. Uh, that you know, Hobart's hopefully able to get some Florida talent up there. Uh, Coach DeWall is a phenomenal recruiter because, again, Hobart that makes it easier when Hobart's a you know a good program and a good school. But he is really a great recruiter and a great coach. Um, and uh, as far as former players, I mean, I see them all the time, and you know, it's great having Coach DeWall at the head because he was our coach then. Yeah, and it's great to see that. Uh, you know, he's been given that opportunity as the head coach there because uh, he really is a phenomenal coach. If you weren't still playing football, what would you be doing? It's a great question. <laughs> um, 
it, honestly, it could have gone a couple different ways. I think I could have been anywhere from you know, uh, a gym teacher to a football coach to a financial advisor, honestly. And what, what, I, what I love about that is that Hobart, they really gave you the opportunities in the job, uh, the career services there. They were able to sort of set all those different things up for me, and uh, fortunately, football ended up working out. <laughs> you don't do your own financial advising, though, right? Do you leave that to somebody else? I don't. Uh, I do leave it to someone else. Uh, that being said, uh, I think it's important uh, in the locker room to have someone that can, you know, at least nudge players in certain ways to ask themselves uh, serious questions about their finances and to make sure they're. Uh, taking it on the right way and for me that's something that's definitely something i see myself doing uh just helping guys and making sure they're asking their own financial guys uh the right questions keith beautiful night in florida earlier this week when ellie and i were talking i don't watch a ton of nfl anymore i'm sorry to say i spend most of my sunday doing d3football.com which i think is how all of those years of marpet's career slipped away for me and I also think we're old, and the years blend together. Damn. And he's a guard on the Buccaneers, not a quarterback on the Cowboys. So unless you're crashing all 22 video on a regular basis, you probably don't know how good he is, how likely he is to remain a starter through that 10-year threshold, et cetera. But I, but I think it's a great sign that you know when your team, three years after drafting you, extends you for six years. Uh, Marpet is under contract with the Bucs through 2023, and you can see why, or you can hear why uh, i think the more worker bees you have in the building and, and d3 players are by definition worker bees because we take none of the opportunities for granted as you'll hear later in the pod so you get a guy like that a guy who wants to work who wants to be great and you can hear pat in the interview with with you and him uh, that he's engaging he's likable he knows all the players who came through the team from D3, I didn't even know Cecil Shorts was ever on the Bucks. I lost track after the Jaguars and Houston Texans. You know, it's just not a shock that he's successful as he's been from the personality standpoint. The part that's always a shock and is always a difficult projection for D3 players for us, uh, as, as Ali talked about, is, you know, where they fit in the NFL, where 80 to 90 percent of the players in the NFL were the best on their high school team, best players on the college team. You know, the old axiom is that a small school player must dominate at, at their level. So I don't think beyond all region or all American honors, Pat, we could have told you that the physical traits were there, that the work ethic was there for, for Ali to be a longtime NFL starter. I mean, we name a, a dozen first team All-Americans all, every year. And I think it's just so hard for us to project which among those dozen is, is going to make it. Yeah, agreed. And I get those questions from the people who run scouting services and scouting podcasts and websites and the like. And I always tell them there isn't any way I can tell you who is going to be a great candidate out of Division Three to go on and play on Sundays. I mean, it can be done, but remember, there are 20, what was it, 22,000, 25,000 yeah. D3 players right there. Yep. Two, almost 250 teams. You're thinking 75 to 100 players per roster at the very least. It's just way too many for any one person to watch. It would really have to be. Uh, a, a, an amazing operation to to really see and grade every player. And, and obviously you and I, and mostly you, to be quite honest, when it gets to All-American time um, and, and you know some of the other folks that help with the website uh, have a good idea of who's an All-American. But again, yeah, which one of those All-Americans has the physical trait is going to land in the right situation for, for him to succeed. And then also, you know, has that work ethic. I, I think it's just, it's really hard for us to project. And we don't, we don't always find that guy. 
Yeah. We need this guy in the league, though, to be honest. You know, London Fletcher, the John Carroll linebacker, uh, longtime NFL guy, was our, our long-term D3 guy for years in the league. Pierre Garçon has played 11 seasons. He turns 34 in August. Uh, Derek Carrier, the Beloit alum playing tight end for the Raiders, is going into season number eight. Uh, you know, Whitewater alum Jay Kumaro has made 20 catches for the Packers over the past two seasons. Nicholas Morrow, uh, you know, the perhaps... No, I think almost undoubtedly the most unlikely D3 guy in the league of all a safety from <laughs> Greenville who's playing significant time at linebacker for the Raiders. Uh, these are the guys. These are the guys who represent D3 in the league, and Marpet has a, a chance to be that longevity guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy to see that it's him. You know, for you, you hear guys, they, they kind of make it. Uh, whether it's what's Marpet or Chris Greenwood or, or Nicholas Morrow or Ben Barch, you know, the, just they have this rare combination of the right traits, the right situation, which team they land on and that personality to, to push through and succeed. And I'm, I'm just really happy based on everything James and Frank have always said about him or, or the Hobart coaches or everything that you read. Uh, I'm just really happy that he's having as much success as he's having. Now into D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. We're joined by Gary Foshing, the head coach at St. John's University, with a shiny national semifinalist uh, trophy on his desk. Headed in now to a 2020 campaign, which sees the uh, one of the biggest rivalries in Division Three football moving on to yet another big stage. You guys are going to be playing at U.S. Bank Stadium now in uh, the, the second to last week of the season. That is where the uh, Minnesota Vikings play, where the Super Bowl was held a couple years ago. Tell us a little bit about what went into that decision well certainly wasn't what we had envisioned maybe uh when we were uh, when we found out that this was going to be the last game i think the intention of everybody certainly including myself was to have it here on campus you know we love the venue we have we've we've crammed eighteen thousand in there and you know i said well let's let's you know see if we can get twenty five thousand in there and and uh then our administration and our our security people said you don't understand what it's like here on a game day. You don't know what it's like. There's no parking. Uh, it's actually dangerous in some cases. If people had to get out of the stadium, we'd be in big trouble. Um, and uh, so anyway, but, but even to back up a little bit, uh, U.S. Bank came to us in early September and asked us if we'd be interested. And at that time, I, I told Bob Elpers, our AD, I said, I'm not interested in playing at any other place but, but St. John's. Um, and then they came back a couple weeks later and asked the same thing. You know, I think maybe they thought we were going to, you know, after we thought about it more, but we said the same thing. But then when St. Thomas decided they were, you know, going to go D1, and this was for certain going to be the last one, uh, then conversation started taking place about can we hold that many people on our campus and can we do it in a safe way? And uh, for everybody that wants to see the game, and the answer to a lot of those questions was no. So uh, then U.S. Bank came back to us again and, and um, said they'd be willing to host the game. And, and so um, we went with it. And, um, you know, it's uh, I have mixed feelings about it because, uh, you know, we take away a home game here at St. John's, which is for us really important. Um, and for our kids to play in this field, you know, they love it. And, uh, but it's, uh, it's another venue. We've played at different ones in the past, and we'll do the best and, and uh, show up and play. Yeah, I guess I could see where you could fit 
maybe 25,000 people in the bowl, but having been here, you know, four games where it's been like 17,000, I can't imagine getting that many people in and out when you've got the one access road and, you know, another kind of winding road that comes into campus from the backside. I just can't imagine how that would be done logistically. And that was the big issue. You know, we have the one main um, road going in and out of campus and, uh, you know, in the past years, they've closed down 94 at times because there's people waiting to get off the exit onto the road leading into campus. So they just, you know, it was it would have been impossible from the standpoint of our security people and and others to try to make that work. So, uh, you know, this is a good alternative. Uh, you know, again, like I said, it's not what I envisioned, but, um, you know, it, it'll work out fine. I think there was kind of a general consensus that probably St. John's would never do this. St. Thomas, you know, has bigger issues, right, in terms of their campus, no parking, smaller stadium, made sense for them. So what's kind of been the reaction from alums and other people around the program after this came out? You know, there have been a few that have been negative about it, uh, and, um, you know, I expected that. I think we all did. Um, but for the most part, I think it's been very positive. I think... Um, you know, it's being played at a time of the year where you don't know what the weather is going to be like either November 7th. So it might be a blessing. We might have a snowstorm that day and we'll be indoors. Uh, but for the most part, I think uh, the public is looking at this as a, an opportunity to see a great rivalry in the, you know, the final game uh, going down in, in, a, in a very nice stadium. Your games against St. Thomas have held the Division Three attendance record for many, many years. And then, you know, this past November, that got usurped by uh, Ithaca and Cortland. Is there any talk about, you know, people eager to get an opportunity to try to break that 45,000, put the put this back on top? The people at U.S. Bank, that was the first thing they mentioned to us is that uh, they want to break the record and they expect to break the record. So um, that was one of the things they enticed us with early on, the first phone call. Um, and... Um, you know, so I think uh, that's in the back of everybody's mind that we certainly could get uh, more than 45,000 there for this game. All right, we're going to switch gears big time now from 2020 back to 2019 for a second. Uh, you know, your outstanding tackle, Ben Barch, is a guy who's gotten a ton of notoriety. And we knew about that, you know, during the season, all talk about, you know, NFL teams coming to take a look at him, uh, maybe even before the season started, some of that stuff. And now a uh, fantastic performance during the uh, practices leading up to the Senior Bowl. I understand that you guys had a chance to go down there. What did you see? What, you know, what kind of, what were people saying about? Well, they uh, they couldn't have been more impressed. We didn't get down there for the first day of practice, but uh, we watched it on TV and got to see him perform. And, and uh, the response that we were getting from the scouts that were down there that had connected with us this fall was that Ben was every bit as good as anybody down there. And they were just uh, tremendously impressed with him, not only football-wise, but through the interview process and you know, the way Ben uh, carries himself and things like that. So they were just uh, super impressed. And, and uh, I know the, the Bengals coaching staff, which was coaching in the game, had nothing but great things to say about him, uh, probably using language that I probably can't use here on the air. But they were uh, just, they said, this guy, uh, he's something else. And um, so they were very positive, And so were all the other scouts that were down there. So, um, you know, he, he, uh, he did well for himself. Unfortunately, he had a little injury right at the end of that and couldn't play in the game, but the game is, you know, secondary to the practices. So, you know, he's getting ready for the combine uh, in a couple of weeks here, and, and uh, hopefully he'll be able to participate in most of that. 
Yeah, what do you know about, like, where is he training, where is he working out, who is he working out with, and what's this time like between that appearance and going to the Combine? Um, he's been down really since uh, since we finished our season. Uh, he went back home for a little bit, and then he went out to California. He's out in San Diego training down there uh, with his agent, and I think there's 12 other uh, draft-eligible uh, kids that are down there training with him. So he's getting a, a good feel for what it's going to be like at the Combine, and and um, you know already has gotten you know stronger and, and quicker and things like that. So uh, they're really impressed with him. Um, I, I and I can't say enough about. And, and you got to give a lot of credit to Ben. I mean, he you know, two years ago he was a, he was a third team tight end here, and uh, I had conversations with him about moving to moving to uh, tackle, and he didn't want to do it. You know, he viewed himself as a tight end, and he was a good tight end. But we had two two guys who were better than him. Finally, uh, convinced him between the summer of his sophomore and junior year. This is something you really need to think about. It would help us as a football team, and and I said it would help you too. And um, he came back about 45 minutes later up to my office and said, "I'm I'm going to switch to offensive line." And then he did everything possible. I mean, he came back two months later, and he was 25 pounds heavier, and uh, and much stronger. And uh, you know, went on this ridiculous protein diet that he was on, and. Uh, just put on weight and strength, and um, so he did it the right way, and he's um, he's made himself into a very, very good football player who could be drafted. We're hearing as early as the third round, which would which one would think would be crazy, but is actually not all that unprecedented anymore for a Division three right. offensive lineman. When the combine comes around, do you guys go down? Will any of you go down to Indianapolis? We won't. Uh, you know, we saw what we what we wanted to see down at the Senior Bowl, and. It's tough to, I mean, even down there, you couldn't really get close to him because they, I mean, we got a chance to visit with him and, and spend some time with him and his family. But, I mean, they have those guys sequestered and, you know, they're interviewing them and, um, you know, uh, it's incredible. And I would assume it's probably the same at the, at the Combine. You know, Ben was telling us about uh, every every team interviewed him and, and I was asking, well, who was some of the strange interviews he had? And he said, for example, the, the Seahawks, uh, um, started up by saying, let's have a steering contest. <laughs> All right. And so they had a steering contest, and after about two and a half minutes, they go, okay, good. And then they went on to the next nice, thing. Nice so, yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, they play a lot of those kinds of things. But uh, And Ben, you know, he's uh, – one of the questions that a lot of the scouts asked me this fall was, do you think he will get phased by any of this stuff? And I go, no, because he's got the perfect personality – uh, he's just quirky enough that he's, uh, you know, nothing's going to phase him down there, and it hasn't. He's jumped right in and, and fit in with the guys. All right, I got to ask a little bit about uh, 2020 Johnny's season as well on the field. Um, big question, I think everybody who's outside of the program is going to want to know what the quarterback situation is going to look like. Like, is the guy who's going to take the first snap or the most snaps in the 2020 season opener someone who was on the roster this past fall? Could be. Um, it's a good question. Chris Backus has been our backup for two years, and Chris does some really nice things. Our offense would probably look a little bit different with him there. We've got a couple other people who uh, who are on the roster that uh, have looked good, I guess, in seven-on-seven seven stuff this, this uh, winter. So I would assume that that guy's probably on the roster. If he's not, it's going to be a big surprise, you know, coming. Uh, and we've got some freshmen coming in, but you can't depend on freshmen to come in unless, well, Unless you're a Jackson Erdman, maybe who's had a, a season under his belt at another place. But um, so uh, we're confident with the people we have, and um, 
you know, if we get if somebody transfers in here at this late stage, which sometimes happens after spring ball, they might think, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna look for a different place. And if that happens, uh, we'll certainly be open to them. But um, we feel good about where we're at. You know, we got to you know replace not only uh, uh, Jackson but our offensive line. We lose four four starters there, two All Americans. Yeah. That's gonna be tough to replace. So we got we got some work to do. You know, again, I think uh, the the people we have in our program and. And uh, you know, we had a, a kid come in last year, transferred in, but he was injured. He had back surgery, so he didn't play all year. You know, we don't know what he can do. Um, so, um, you know, there's there's people there, and and um, but I think uh, you know, for what we've done, and you know, the the type of offense we're running here would certainly be attractive to any kind of quarterback who wants to throw the football. I really appreciate Coach Foshing's candor. Do we have to do the thing where we just call him Gary? Have I asked this before? I don't know how many of uh, of John Gallardi's traditions are still part of the St. John's program, but I imagine darn near all of them. And one was that John just wanted to be addressed like a man with his given name, not a title. But most coaches appreciate being called that and, and consider it a term of respect. So in any case, I appreciate uh, his candor about the U.S. Bank Stadium situation, that they didn't really want to play it there. And if you've ever been to St. John's or even heard about games or seen pictures online, there you can understand why they would want to keep it on campus but he explained very well why the logistics and you actually you know point out and and I this is one thing I love about the pod just just you know you know D3 so well you've been to St. John's and and there really are just quirks where you could physically jam that many people into the bowl yeah. at Clemens Stadium but you couldn't get them in and out efficiently. You know, they, they said it was it could be dangerous. So, you know, for people who tuned out in, in November or December, there's some D3 news in that interview, right? Like, I didn't I didn't re- realize the game was was going to be there. St. Thomas going D1, the last Tommy Johnny game being bound for the Viking Stadium, the place where the greatest Super Bowl ever was played. Uh, you know, and, it, and it's great to hear Ben Barch's backstory that he wasn't an automatic NFL guy. His story is one that some D3 people can relate to. Obviously, he's 6'6". He had the underlying physical traits. But to go from 13th string tight end to maybe the next Ali Marpet in two years is pretty amazing and also fuel for whoever else is uh, is coming up next. Super Bowl 36 or Super Bowl 34? I don't think either of those were played in that stadium, sir. Well, I mean, obviously, you're entitled to your opinion on what the best Super Bowl (laughs) ever was. And there really have been... uh, a bunch of good ones lately. Pat, remember when we grew up, the Super Bowl was just... It was a blowout every year. It was like 55-10, yeah. 42-10, 46-10. Uh, oh, well, I guess there were always 10. Um, but there are a lot of bad, bad Super Bowls in uh, you know in the late 80s, early 90s. Just huge blowouts, 59-17. Well, no doubt, as a Vikings fan, I do not have a Super Bowl that ranks clearly as the best all-time in my mind. I have four that I prefer not to think about. Yes, and one year that really the Vikings were the best team in football and should have won it. 98, we won't mention Gary Anderson oh, God. Uh, more often on this podcast. Guy didn't miss a kick all year except for the one that would have propelled them through. So, um, you know, back to St. John's, I, I think the we know, we've know we known the buzz on, on Barch has been building for a, a long time and it's no surprise. I'm a little surprised we aren't hearing any on Jackson Erdman or, or really any of the D3 QBs that had a ton of success the past few seasons, including Brock Rutter from North Central, D'Angelo Fulford from Mount Union, David Tamaro from Johns Hopkins. Yeah, I think I've heard about these guys getting workouts, but, uh, you know, it's a little bit uh, those guys, the guys who are not in the draft mix will, you know, we'll continue to hear more about later as March and uh, April 
moves along. One John Gilardi tradition going away in 2021 is that St. John's will be venturing a little further afield for its one of its non-conference games. Johnny's are playing Whitworth in a home-and-home, and, home, and 2021 is the year that St. John's gets in a plane for a regular season game and flies to Washington State. That's a really good series, and whoever wins that game may need that win to get itself into the postseason. Now I'm uh, delighted to be joined by Mason Kinsey, a soon-to-be eventually graduate of Barry College, a senior this past season, and a guy who's got great hopes for the NFL, a wide receiver. Mason, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right, man. So, you know, we've talked your name quite a bit. Obviously, you're a guy who's been very prominent in the Barry program, which has been on the national stage for a few years now. But just tell us a little bit about, you know, your time at Barry before we get into what we uh, hope is coming up next. Yes, sir. So uh, I, I spent four years at Barry, uh, played four seasons at Barry. I um, played a lot as a freshman. I really stepped into my role my sophomore year. Um, and then kind of went on from there as far as all region and all American recognition um, from certain places my junior and senior year. Um, but yeah, had a great time, uh, winning program. I came from a high school that didn't win a lot of football games. Um, went from winning three games in high school in four years to winning four straight conference championships. So uh, definitely made the most out of my time there, and I really enjoyed it. I think the first time that uh, we heard your name in con in connection with NFL scouts was sometime between junior year and senior year. I, I don't even remember, maybe even going into junior year. Tell us a little bit about how that has progressed, how that's evolved. Yeah, so uh, my coach actually got an email from uh, Brian McLaughlin, one of the, the area scouts from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, they were having a junior day at West Georgia, and they sent out an invite for me to show up. Um, and we had probably six or eight other guys from West Georgia. A lot of dudes that had transferred into West Georgia from <clears throat> bigger D1 schools. And uh, so I went there. We did things, took, took the Wonderlick test, um, did height, weight, hand size, arm length. And then it was actually pouring down rain um, <clears throat> in Carrollton at the time. And they said, you know, we're not, no one wants to run in the pouring down rain. Um, they gave us the option to run the 40. So. Uh, most of the guys were like, no, we're not going to run. And I said, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to get this shot again. So um, the original plan was to go to Carrollton High School's indoor facility. We drove there. They said it's not able to be ran on. Um, and so I said, I went outside. It doesn't matter. So um, ended up running outside in the rain and ended up clocking a 4.47 and a 4.53 on my 40s in the rain. So uh, that helped me out a lot. And once they put that into the system and kind of put the – the climate and how things were going that day. Um, some more teams started getting in contact and uh, had 24 NFL teams, I believe, come by the school in the fall, um, see me face to face. And then I've talked to the rest either over the phone or at the Shrine game. So I am still processing 447 and 453 outdoors in the rain. That is uh, no wonder you, no wonder you got so many people banging down your door. Yeah, uh, I actually surprised myself a little bit then, um, but it all worked out. That's what it's like for D3 guys, right? You cannot afford to take the chance that you're ever going to get a second look from somebody, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, you always got to check the boxes. Yeah. Um, all it takes is a guy from a small school is to give them one reason not to 
not to look at you, and that's all they need. Um, and, you know, guys that play in the SEC, Power 5, they might need multiple. Um, but with you, you're kind of on a short leash as far as that, that kind of thing goes. So. All right. We've already talked in this podcast that, uh, you know, there's one guy in D3 who got a scouting combine invite. You're not that guy, but, you know, obviously you don't have to be in the combine to get drafted. You don't have to be drafted to get a shot at the NFL. But what was your reaction when you found out uh, and how do you find out that you're not getting invited? Well, actually, kind of how the process works is that they don't talk to agents. They won't talk to coaches. Um, they won't talk to anyone. So there's actually a number that you can call, um, and they'll tell you basically if you're on the edge, if you're not going to receive one, or if they plan to give you one, and the deadline's January 31st. Um, I kind of thought that if I go into the Shrine game and really hold my own and do what I can there, then it will really up my chance to get a combine invite. I wasn't necessarily expecting one before then. Um, I, I, I thought I had a great week at the Shrine game, the scouts. Uh, told me I had a great week at the Shrine game, especially on one-on-ones and things like that because obviously the biggest question for me was level of competition. Yeah. Um, and I thought that I legitimately gave myself a chance to get a combine invite. Um, but I ended up calling up there. Um, they were like, no, we don't plan on extending you an invite. But at the end of the day, it's God's plan. Um, if I'm not supposed to be at the combine, I'm not supposed to be at the combine. So I'm just going to make the most of my opportunities. Um, I'm having a pro day March 11th at Kennesaw State. And if that's where I'm supposed to be, then that's where I'll be, and I'll give it all I got and go from there. Tell us a little bit about the the Shrine game. You know, like these, uh, you know, like a lot of these games. You know, everybody talks about what those one-on-one workouts are, what the practices are like leading up to it. That they're more important probably than the actual game itself. But just kind of take us through that whole week. Oh yeah, so uh, we got there, I believe, on a Sunday. Uh, Monday was more. Um, taking a lot of tests, um, filling out a lot of sheets, talking with scouts, um, getting equipment in, things like that. We started practice on Tuesday. We practiced Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Oh, we also visited the Shriners Hospital, which was awesome, on Monday. Um, really great opportunity. Met a lot of cool kids, a lot of cool people. Um, definitely didn't take that for granted. That was awesome. Um, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we had practice. Friday, we did a walkthrough, and then Saturday was the game. So our daily routine is we'd wake up, eat breakfast, have meetings, and then we would get on the bus, go to practice. We'd go from practice, take showers. They'd drive us back to the hotel. We'd go to lunch. Then we'd have more meetings, and then we'd go to dinner, and then we would meet with scouts from anywhere from 7 to maybe 11 at night. Um, And that was every single night. Sometimes you talk to more teams more than once. Uh, do different things with different teams. It could be just answering basic questions or actually having recorded interviews. Okay. Um, but it, it was jam-packed. It, it was busy. So, What are some of the questions you receive? And then what's like the strangest question someone asked you? I think some of the most generic questions is, you know, people think that they want you to break down coverages and, and talk a lot about football, but really they just want to get to know you as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, at first they've got to mark off the red flags if there are any red flags for personality you know, substance abuse, things like that. They want to mark those mark those boxes first because it doesn't matter how, how good you are in football. You have to check those boxes first. Um, probably one of the hardest questions um, that, I, that I think I received was, would you rather win a Super Bowl and not be in the Hall of Fame or be in the Hall of Fame and not win a Super Bowl? Um, which is tough because, you know, there's also the team, there's always the team aspect. You want to win. 
um, and you want to be the guy that's for the team always, um, always team first. Um, but also you have standards for yourself and you know, the position that I am and just the mentality I have, I want to be great at everything I do. doesn't matter if I'm delivering mail or catching footballs or, you know, writing papers. So um, it was hard for me. But at the same time, um, it's going to be hard to keep your job if you're not winning. So it's going to be hard to put up numbers if you're not on a team that's not producing. So obviously I said Super Bowl because that's, you know, that's a dream. Um, but being in the Hall of Fame, that's just a bonus. Um, that's really just product of how much you invest in your career and into your time during football. So, uh, you know, I'm looking at, I see, I see a roster that says, uh, God, what did I see? 5'11", maybe 175, and then I saw 6'0", 195, something like that. Where do you? Where did they measure you out officially? What are you looking at now? So I was 5'10 and 3 fourths. So 5'10 uh, and 3 fourths. I weighed in at 198. Uh, I actually weighed in this morning at 202. So um, I want to be right at the 200, anywhere from 202 to 200 mark. Uh, I don't want to get too heavy. I uh, just want to be able to run and run fast. So. Um, five ten and three fourths. If anybody asks, I say five eleven just to keep it simple. But five eleven, two hundred pounds. I think you can get by with five eleven. I don't think anybody's going to give you a hard time for rounding up from five ten and three quarters to five eleven because I round myself up from five eleven and a half to six foot all the time. <laughs> no uh, so you're. Uh, what else are you focusing on right now? You talked about, obviously, speed is the thing that got people's attention. So what uh, what are the skills that people are asking you to work on, or what are you hearing? Well, I think some of the um, misconceptions, I think, a little bit, um, some questions is strength. Um, and I think I'm going to surprise a lot of people as far as strength. I'm, I'm shooting for 20 reps at 225 on the bench press. Um, and I think I showed a lot of, of my ability to return um, in the Shrine game. I actually wasn't even on the, the return roster for punt return. And I went up to the special teams coach who works for the Steelers, and I was like, hey, like, put me at punt return. And I, I started I started fielding punts throughout the week um, and kind of proved myself as a returner, didn't have muffs, um, started rising up the depth chart a little bit on that and ended up being the second punt returner um, and having a 22-yard return there. So uh, the biggest thing for me, though, I just want to be reliable um, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes. It doesn't matter if I'm playing receiver, if I'm playing running back, long snapper, kicker, um, I'll do whatever I got to do. Um, so just being reliable. Um, and being a weapon wherever I am on the field. So, who who are you working with right now? Where are you working out? So I'm at Chip Smith Performance in Norcross, Georgia. Um, he's the man. He, he's the man. So um, he's put I think 3,100 people with an NFL shot. So he's been doing it for 30 plus years. Got a big resume. So. All right. So you mentioned you got a pro day coming up at the beginning of March, uh, right about a month from when we're recording this. And what else do you have on your schedule? Like, do you where does it go from there? Uh, so after March 11th at the pro day, um, you end up you just kind of stay in shape. Uh, I think the draft's April 23rd, um, but then you start taking top 30 visits. Yeah. Um, you know, hopefully I'll be in more than a few of those. Um, just flying out to wherever or driving. If it's in Atlanta, you know, doing some things like that, having private workouts um, and going over physicals, kind of the stuff that they don't get to see if you don't go to the combine. So check those boxes as far as the physical, um, taking those visits, and then just waiting until April 23rd and staying in shape. And then waiting and waiting and waiting for a phone call, right? Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, whether it's day one, day day four, you know, day well, I guess day three, day four, um, five minutes after the draft, um, just whenever, man. It, it don't matter to me. 
I'm, I'm, I'm thankful regardless. So you mentioned taking the wonderlick test. I'd have to think for a D three guy, that's probably pretty easy, right? Oh yeah. Uh, it's 50 questions, 12 minutes. And when I took it, I got to question 49 and I only left one blank. So, um, I, and I felt like I did really good on it. So, um, I've been actually studying different versions of the Wonder League test for Pro Day, so I guess we'll see how it goes the second time around. I think it would be pretty hard as a scout to come away from the meeting Mason Kinsey part of the process unimpressed. You all hear it for yourself and how he talks and how he acts, and it, it comes off as genuine. And as someone who is now doing hiring and thinking about the mix you want to have on a team of, of workers, you definitely want some Mason Kinsey's on your roster, some players who aren't spoiled at all and don't wait for the opportunity to present itself later, right? The go-getters. The running 40 outside story seems like it would be the kind of thing that follows Kinsey around in, in scouting circles, not just for the 447 and the 453, but the willingness to do it, to drive to different fields, to do it in the rain. That's just a really just reflects really well on the on the type of man that you want to bring into your program. And by the way, uh, speaking of type of man, 5'11", 200 is not a small man. Now, maybe by NFL standards, you think that's small, but, but at 5'11", 200, if he has that short area quickness to play slot receiver, return a few punts, and maybe cover kicks on special teams, he might be a guy who ends up on a roster and sticks for a while. He, he just gives off that vibe, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, my spare time, longtime listeners might, might recall I'm a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. To say you might recall it from 15 minutes ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I could say that I've heard uh, Kinsey discuss on both Birds with Friends and Eagle Eye in the Sky, two of the, the more popular podcasts. So the legitimate podcast world, NFL world, is aware of him. And, and I think he's projected as a late-round pick at best. Yeah. But he has all the traits, it would seem, of a guy who will come into the program, do whatever it takes to stick it until he finds a role. I would have to think that just about any D3 guy who goes through a round of interviews like this is going to impress people just in general, right? Hashtag YD3. And hopefully crush the Wonderlick too. Is the Wonderlick still a big deal? It's been like a decade since I've worked on the sports desk. I'm a couple years off sports desk myself. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. Now is the time of the podcast where we dive into Twitter and use the last of my voice for like the month of February. We know even in the offseason you have questions, so we throw out that reminder on the tweet box to hit us up when it's time for Keith and me to step into the studio. And our question for this month comes from Logan Hansen at Loghan Ratings. I mean, yeah, it's probably Loghan Ratings, but it was easier to pronounce. I was going to say that. <laughs> it's easier to pronounce this way, right? Serious question. Why are they expanding to six regions? What problems has the NCA said explicitly will be solved with this and how does this expansion benefit the D3 mission or playoff selection well that is a great question and if you want to know the basics about regional expansion you have to go back to I'm flipping through the book I'm not going to get it but like the last time we had uh, coach cat and zero co-host we talked a little bit about that they're talking about breaking our beloved four regions up into six which seems extremely unnecessary for division three football it doesn't make a lot of logical sense but they're trying to just make things more uniform across sports which is something the ncaa uh, division three people love to do is it going to make a big difference uh, in terms of playoff selections i think the one thing it'll do is depending on how these regions are broken up is you might have a new england team on the board at all times people are scared that that might mean that a uh, more new england teams might get at large bids i'm not sure that's necessarily true there was a long discussion following this uh conversation on twitter on tuesday if you go look up 
uh, Locan ratings uh, or any of those associated tweets, you can find it. But I would recommend that if you are someone who's super interested in this and can't get enough from what we've just talked about, uh, Dave McHugh on Hoopsville, which is the podcast slash show from d3hoops.com, did a significant chunk on this in their show on Sunday. And by Sunday, I mean February 23rd. Uh, it's about 25 minutes into the show. And Brad Bankston, who you may remember is the commissioner of the Old Dominion Athletic Conference, is on this committee that is, uh, you know, in the process of uh, making these things happen. Uh, and he gave Dave more than a half hour of his time. I think that's the best. I could not do better than that. And you don't want to sit through another half hour of this particular podcast when there's already a podcast that covers it. That would be my recommendation is that you go there. And we'll put it in the show notes and you can find it that way. Keith, on our way out the door, uh, people were also talking about, you know, that uh, Johnny Tommy game taking place in the big stadium and leaving the St. John's campus. I know we talked uh, and we heard uh, Gary Foshing's opinion. What about our personal opinions on that? Yeah, I think after uh, going to see Ithaca and Cortland at MetLife this year, you know, can a D3 program fill a stadium like that? And can it be filled in a way that doesn't feel like it's, uh, it's empty or you're doing too much. Uh, I, I thought they did a, did a great job and, and maybe part of it's the way MetLife is built uh, where it's, it's really cozy, but the, you just basically lop off the top section and don't sell the, the really far away seats. And then the rest of the bowl fills in. I think U S bank stadium can pull this off. And I think Minnesota has proven between Allianz field and target field, Several thousand people will, will come to this game. And if this is the last Tommy Johnny game ever, that's the reason you drive in from Chicago or Fargo or wherever you move to. If you some for some reason you moved out of Minnesota, but you you still want to see this game. Um, I think they I think they're gonna break the record. I think they'll take it back. And I'm glad you asked. I was go as I listened to it, I was going through in my mind like do they care about the record or is it just thing a thing that you and I care about? Can. And I, I think it's cool to know that that U.S. Bank Stadium cares about it. They seat 66,000. Uh, tickets go on sale in March. It'll be interesting to see how those go. I know that from having talked to people up in Collegeville that uh, breaking the record or taking the record back is heavy on their minds. And I am certainly hopeful that, uh, you know, we will see. Uh, you know, basically everybody who bought a ticket take their seat in the stadium. I think that would be a, a great show. And it, it, you might want to think about what your November 7th calendar looks like, man. It's awful close to the birthday weekend, but uh, but yeah, I think I could travel for this one. It seems like it would be worth the time. And I think, to be quite honest, um, if it really is the last Johnny Tommy game and maybe end up as the last Tommy Johnny game. You're playing for the to, the right to rename the game forever. Yeah. Uh, it should be a huge deal. I, I do think you make a good point that the the tailgating is is always really important at, at these rivalry games and people want to see their old friends and uh, hang out and eat and drink. But to break the record and to really feel to give it that 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 atmosphere if you're going to get to, you know, upper 40s, 50,000, who knows what what kind of number you can hit. Um, yeah, come on into the stadium and, and let that thing roar. And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 272, released on February 26th of 2020. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage this offseason. If you like the podcast, what you do with podcasts that you like 
is you rate them in like Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher or iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcast, because that will help it rise in those rankings, those mythical rankings, and help other football fans find it. You can leave comments on a specific episode for us on the blog page as well. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football, and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering a post at D3Boards.com, and you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music and a lot of the other music we've used in this podcast is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to our guests, Ali Marpet, Gary Foshing, and Mason Kinsey, as well as Sports Information Directors Ryan Klickner and Blake Childers for their time and assistance helping us put this show together. Thanks to James Baker and Frank Rossi from In the Huddle. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. We're in the off-season, like we said, but we still put new content on D3Football on a regular basis. Yeah, even in February, we kept that front page moving. So we'll follow those coaching changes. We'll continue to look at the players who have pro prospects. We'll continue to update the football schedules for 2020 and more. Plus, you can find a new podcast in this feed from us each month. <coughs> That's you coughing. What's me coughing sound like? There'll be a time to uh, to look at all this stuff and to reflect, but now's not the time.